Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The album was a joy to make. I learned so much, not only about recording, but I learned so much about myself. I learned to be a little bit more patient, to deal with people a little bit better than I had before. But again, it was a great learning experience for me, and it was uh, so fulfilling, especially the fact that that album was a, a success right off the bat. Because what had happened was I, they had signed me to a solo deal when I was in Sabbath. We were signed to Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers said, we don't want to lose this kid. So... We want to sign you to a solo deal. So they and Polydor, or Phonogram at the time, both signed me to a solo career. So when my time was up in Sabbath, I had an album deal all ready to go, which was, you know, wonderful for me. So we started the project. Then we were called in my Warner Brothers and said, uh, we need to have a meeting with you. And I had a meeting with uh, Ted Templeman. Ted was head of A&R. The meeting was at 10 o'clock in the morning. We didn't get out of the studio until about 4 o'clock in the morning. So I, Wendy and I went... Uh, to Warner Brothers and dragged ourselves in, got there at 10 o'clock and waited about a half an hour in Ted's office. He came staggering through the door and he went, what are you doing here so early, Ronnie? I said, well, you're the one who called the meeting. He said, no, I didn't. He said, what's this all about? I said, well, I'm assuming it's about the fact that we're doing an album and you don't seem to know about it. I said, so what's the story? He said, who's producing it? I said, I am. He said, get out of here and go finish it. This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your hosts, Stephen Michael and Sonny Hollywood Pooney. Now, crank it up. All right, welcome to the March album series. Sonny, this is going to be one for the ages. This obviously is one of my picks. So tonight we are celebrating the 40th anniversary of Dio's debut record, Holy Diver. 
I'm excited about this one, Sonny. Can you feel the excitement? Surprise! I can feel the excitement. And I remember sending the text to this gentleman saying, which album would you like to review with us? I ain't never got a text back so fast in my whole life. My kids don't text me that fast, and they're teenagers. Homie was waiting. He had an inkling. Well, it's good that we're we're pulling this back to a heavy metal, a hard rock record after last month's Rick Springfield record that you picked, because I'm worried that we might not have any listeners left after that. But, you know, we'll see. So this album series this year is exactly what we said it was going to be at the beginning, which is there's going to be metal, there's going to be pop, there's going to be rock. We'll get through all of this, but tonight is definitely a hard rock and metal album. And we bought our heavy metal punk expert, Kevin Williams from the In Obscuria podcast in to help us go through this one. What's up, Kevin? What's up, fellas? Yes, I did respond to that very quickly. I saw that list. I saw that list. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I know which one I want. Right away. (laughs) Kevin's been on the podcast many different times. He is my cruise to the edge cruising partner as uh, Poor guy. <laughs> <laughs> as we went through that. They're still playing songs on that. <laughs> They're still the right. song on the set. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Kevin, what's going on with the In Obscuria podcast? Tell us. Oh, man, we're just still rolling on. We have a, a lot of new episodes, new series that we're coming up with this year. And uh, yeah, man, we're just hitting it every week, every Friday in Obscuria Podcast. We drop a new episode, except on certain holidays where we try to hit the holiday. But other than that, it's every Friday, rock and punk and metal. You never know what you're going to get. You may get a single band. You may get multiple bands. But more than likely, you're going to get bands that you don't know. Yeah, so describe the podcast to the listeners that are new to our podcast and haven't heard you talk about an Obscuria podcast, because you definitely have an interesting concept on things there. Yeah, I mean, it is what it sounds like. It's obscure music. So we try to focus on what we say, the lost, the forgotten, or the should have been. So a lot of them are bands that maybe you just have never heard of. I've been collecting music since I was, God, 16. So it's been a long time. I'm, I'm 50 this year. So I've always loved things that are a little left to center. And uh, once I start digging into a genre, I, I tend to go pretty deep. So we'll do full series on like acid rock from the seventies and we'll pull out all these bands that released one album and you couldn't find them, you know, the, until two years ago. So we'll, we'll do all sorts of stuff like that. Yes. That's sunny. <laughs> when we go through our two fifty list series, I get a, a text from Kevin telling me exactly who Baby Tucku is. Hey, Baby Tucku is awesome, man. You were making fun of them. They are awesome. <laughs> These are all the bands that I say sold 19 copies. That's all the bands we're talking about. I'm one of the, I'm one of the sales. Yeah, so it's definitely, I mean, he's not kidding when he talks about in obscure bands. Kevin's podcast definitely goes deep. We play and talk about deeper tracks on this uh, podcast, but I don't think anything other than our 250 list series, which covers a lot of that stuff. I don't think anything we cover is as deep as the In Obscuria podcast. So the name fits the podcast. I love the 250 series because I like to check off like, yep, got that one. Yep, got that one. (laughs) And I got a bunch of them and I don't even know when I got them. (laughs) I'm like, why do I own this Armored Saint? What the hell is wrong? Why wouldn't you own Armored Saint? (laughs) 
We've definitely become somewhat series oriented here at the Grown Up Rock podcast, and it's it's working out well for us. We've got five or six different series that we sort of rotate in, and once in a while we'll throw an interview in there or throw a left to center type thing. So it's not it's not all series, but that just seems to have worked out best for us. And uh, as people listen to this, obviously it's the end of March when people are going to hear this album review and we've got a whole bunch left eventually sunny is gonna release the poll on the two albums that the listeners are gonna vote on for the year so it's gonna be interesting uh for the rest of the series everyone's got a rock and roll story to tell and we want to hear yours so go to our website at growinguprock.com that's one word G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K dot com. Or visit us on our Facebook page at Growing Up Rock and tell us all about it. Kevin, what's your history with Ronnie James Dio and this Dio debut album, Holy Diver? Yeah, so I came into Dio a little bit later than when this came out. So Dio was one of the first bands that I really got into around 1987. So he was already well-established. And when I was transitioning in 87 from pure punk, because I was a little skate rat and I was only into punk, uh, I was transitioning kind of into metal and getting into some different things. And I had a cousin who was in college at the time, and he saw that I was listening to Kiss one day at the grandmother's house. And he said, hey, man, I got a tape in my car that I need to give you. And it was a mixtape that he had in high school. And it basically represented all things heavy metal, 1982, 1983. It had heavy petting, crocus, helix, loudness except Vandenberg, all those types of bands. And it had Dio, Holy Diver, that open side too. So that was the first song I ever heard was Holy Diver. And I was blown away. I thought it was great. And then that same year, I'm at school and this guy, Jace Ballantyne, comes up and he goes, hey man, check this tape out. And he has, I think it's Sacred Heart is what he had. And it's got, you know, the big Dio logo on the cover of the cassette tape. And he's like, if you turn this over, I'll turn it upside down. It spells devil. <laughs> and I'm like, Whoa, I had no idea. So then I, for whatever reason, that really inspired me to get more into Dio. I'm twisted, I guess. Yeah, no toy. What'd you think we were doing? Prince of Darkness, it is I, Al Gore. I was almost president. What do you wish of me, Al Gore? A demon from hell has been unleashed upon our world. We demand to know its nature. We demand to know its reason for coming. There is only one place you can find the answers you seek. It is the place where all knowledge becomes known. Your local library. And so I went out and the first poster I ever bought was a black light poster. It's the Holy Diver album cover. And that was on my wall until I went to college. Nice. So I don't think, uh, is it, is it devil that Dio spells upside down or evil? Yeah. No, no it's, it's devil. Is it devil? I thought it was evil. And as the albums came out and that was catching some steam, the logo changed just a little bit at a time. Cause if you put down like, uh, Holy Diver, Last in Line, Sacred Heart, you start putting them together, the logo changes just slightly because like <laughs> this one's missing the L. When you turn this one upside down, there is no L. Uh, you got to love it. They they took yeah, the... That's marketing, baby. They took the angel <laughs> approach, right? Yeah. Angel with the flipping uh, logo. 
That's interesting yeah. too. Yeah, that's a, that's yeah. a cool flip. Yeah, so I got the first four albums all in a span of like two to three months that year between 87 and 88. And Holy Diver was, like I said, the first song that I heard from Dio. So I've always had just a love of that song. And it was also one of the first songs I ever learned to play on bass guitar because that was the same year that I got a bass. And I was taking guitar lessons from this jazz guy. Yeah. And he's trying to teach me out of the the Mel Bay book of, you know, learning how to read music and all this stuff. I'm like, no, I brought that mixtape in and my cousin gave me like, hey, can you just teach me this? And it was Holy Diver. And of course, he's rolling his eyes like, okay, I'll teach you how to diver on bass. I'm like, Jimmy Bean's a badass. You know, he's like, all right, whatever. So for you, it was Dio before Dio was Sabbath or Rainbow or any of that stuff, right? Yeah. So that's the funny thing. I had no clue because I didn't have, I think I've said this before on the on the program, but I didn't have MTV growing up. They didn't have it in my little town for what, you know, Bible Belt, whatever the reason. So I didn't have access to the videos, but we did have a... Um, it was called Square Records, and it was our little record shop in in our little town. And they rented videos as well as sold albums and tapes and things. And they had a lot of performance videos. So I used to rent the Sacred Heart concert video. And on that, he plays some rainbow stuff, and he plays Heaven and Hell. And so I remember, like, what are these songs? I don't know what these are. And I went back to the Chris, the guy that owned the little record store, and he's like, man, sit your ass down. The first thing you do when you start a band is talk about your influences. That's how you figure out what kind of band you want to be. So who do you like? Christina Aguilera. Who? No. Come on. Puff Daddy. Wrong. Liza Minnelli? What are you, you guys? This project is called Rock Band. I'm talking about bands that rock. Led Zeppelin. Don't tell me you guys have never gotten the lead out. Jimmy Page, Robert Plant. Ring any bells? What about Sabbath? ACDC. Motorhead. Oh, what are they teaching this place? And he like laid out all the albums. Like here, here's Elf. Deal was an Elf. Here's Black Sabbath. And then, you know, he's got them all laid out. He's like, which one are you going to buy? So I'm like, well, I guess I'll get the uh, Heaven and Hell. So Black Sabbath is the first thing outside of Dio that I bought with Dio in it. But yeah, all of those bands I love. I'm a huge Rainbow Sabbath fan as well. So he completely turned me on to that. Yeah. How about you, Sonny? What's your, uh, you've talked about some of your history with Dio on the, on the podcast before, but what is it with this album in particular? Yeah. I come in, uh, 84 MTV last in line. And I remember the last in line video. I told you that kid was in the show, the Voyagers and I used to, it only lasted one season mm-hmm. and I used to love that show. And I'm like, Hey, that's that Mino kid. He's in the, he's he in Voyagers. The, yeah. the young guy shot himself, right? Yeah. He killed himself. Yeah. So I, you know, I found Last in Line and then went to Holy Diver next and then kind of went backwards, Sabbath, Ozzy. But you got to remember, by the time I'm doing this, it's 87, 88. And I'm trying to mix Crazy Nights, White Snake, Guns N' Roses with like Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. And I'm like, yeah, Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. Kind of, eh. I listen to Heaven to Hell, like, eh, Mob Rules, whatever. And I'm like, ah, oh, okay, I got Fun Metal. Dungeons and Dragons. Okay, got you. Thank you. And I kind of went one way. (laughs) Yeah, so for me, I'm the same as you, Kevin. I knew some of Ronnie James Dio's history, but I was never a Sabbath fan growing up, really. I didn't know that much about Sabbath, and I certainly didn't know anything about Rainbow at the time. So the Dio debut Holy Diver record was my introduction to Ronnie James Dio. 
I've talked about the Ozzy speak of the devil sort of being my introduction to Black Sabbath. Obviously not the Dio Black Sabbath, but Black Sabbath in general came from the speak of the devil. So when I got the Dio record and I sort of fell in love with it, I mean, Rainbow in the Dark's first video I saw, but putting the record on and starting with stand up and shouting, etc. I was a fan from that point on i went backwards and started with live evil uh the black sabbath live evil and i was like holy shit all this is amazing this is all on these dio records with black sabbath so i went out and i bought both heaven and hell mob rules and i was like man these are great records didn't you used to love to look at that album cover for live evil and try to figure out what song is the character representing? That's right. Yeah. The neon night and all this other stuff, right? The, the album cover is just super cool. All the characters on it. But that, that was my introduction. And then I didn't see Dio on the first tour, but I got to see him on the last in line tour. And that was all she wrote for me. I saw that show and it was the most amazing show that I'd ever seen of my young concert going career at that point. Because remember, I didn't see the heyday a kiss or any of that stuff when they were uh in concert so i didn't have you know the the best i had to compare it to were things like van halen and judas priest and those were great but dio was doing stuff that none of those guys were with the freaking floating pyramid and the dragon coming out of the tunnel and the lasers and stuff i mean he was doing stuff that people weren't doing that i i had seen to that point just the live we've talked about it before the live aspect going along with the record aspect is just it's a it's a win-win right yeah that sacred heart video for me because i never got to see dio back in the day but that sacred heart video is just etched into my brain you know with the dragon and all that stuff i just ate that shit up yeah i saw three songs i've told this story before I, we went to go see megadeth and dio 88 or 89 and Megadeth opened, goddamn a stain, just bitching about something. He had had a bad day. And like between every song, bitching about something. Like, God, first time I saw Megadeth, I'm like, good Lord, shut up. Just get this over with. So we get to Dio. And I can't remember if it was with Tone or one of my other friends, Curtis. But uh, we had just seen Striper like a couple of weeks before that. So Dio starts. We don't really know a ton about Dio. First song, you know, it's fine. Second song, fine. Murray shows up. And like everybody's got the devil horn, we fucking bolted. We freaked. <laughs> we didn't know what the hell was going on. We're, you know, we're get out your Gideon Bibles, Bibles and started. Yeah. Them. And I was like, uh, I think we should go. We're, we were gone. And I never saw Dio live again. When you saw Striper, did you get one of those Bibles chucked at you? I've got Bibles. Dude, I got like four or five in here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I saw them recently. They don't do that anymore. They weren't. Uh, they still pass them out. They're small, though. And they'll, he'll just kind of throw them out to the first row or whatever. I never got one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so that's our history with the Dio uh, Holy Diver record in general. Now let's get into some basic facts about this album. So the album was released May 25th, 1983. It was recorded in 1983 at, at Sound City Studios in Van Nuys, California. Very famous studio there in Hollywood. Length of the record is 4129. The label is Warner Brothers in North America and Vertigo in the UK, Mercury in Europe and Japan. Producer is Ronnie James Dio. The record ended up selling a total of 2 million copies. 
what is your thoughts on this album cover? Let's discuss the album cover because it's sort of iconic at this point. Uh, let's start with you, uh, Sonny. Okay. So if you haven't seen the album cover in a while, cloudy skies with kind of like this lava background, Murray, it's got his red eyes with the devil horns going. He's making this weird, like Star Trek sign thingy with one hand. But anyway, so he's got this chain that's whipping and there's a uh, priest with chain around him with a lock, like drowning looks like. Now, the part that I can't figure out is, did he throw him in with the chain and then pulled on the chain and that's how the chain broke? Or is it he threw the chain in to try to save the guy, but the priest didn't want to be saved, so he pulls away? Like, that's the part that I can't quite figure out because the chain is broken and it looks like Murray's pulling it back. So, but it's a cool album cover. I mean, it gets you talking. That there's if nothing else. What's your thoughts on it, Kevin? I never went that deep into it. I always thought he was <laughs> whipping the priest around, and when he was whipping him around, it, the chain broke, and he's going into the water. But I never thought of it the other way. Yeah. But like I said, I had this thing. It was a black light poster above my bed. My parents were so proud. <laughs> All right, so this is what our friends at Wikipedia says about the album art. It says the art was illustrated by a gentleman named Randy Barrett. It features the band's mascot, Murray, as Sonny described, a demonic creature pulling or whipping a snapped metal chain and a man wearing a Catholic priest attire flailing and splashing around in the body of water, wrapped up and locked in the other end of the broken chain. Dio was quick to argue that appearances are misleading, that it could just as easily be a priest killing a devil, wanted people to know not to judge a book by its cover. Now, I looked at this album cover pretty much most of the day when I read Dio's quote, and I don't know how to interpret this in terms of the priest killing the devil. Yeah. How does he interpret that as that? Let me help you, because I found an interview. Okay. And here's what Ronnie said about the album cover. Yep. I seem to remember a little bit of, are you sure you want to do this from the record company? But the idea was to reverse the question of, how come you've got a monster drowning a priest? We wanted to be able to say, how do you know it's not a priest drowning a monster? And I think that's kind of been proven out in the last few years with all the problems we've had in the Catholic Church. In hindsight, I think we were right about who we put in the water. So what he's saying is the priest is the devil and Murray's the good guy. That was always my assumption was that this was a dig at the priests that do bad things. And we know that a lot of them have been caught and they do some bad things. They're not all yeah. good guys. So that was always my interpretation of why that was happening. But yeah. So even though Murray is a beast like creature, he's a good guy is what we're saying. That's right. Don't judge a book by its color. Fair. That's where he's going by that. Okay. I'll accept that. Fair enough. It's a great drawing. Shit, blacklist poster, dude. I, I wouldn't be able to sleep. Man. If this oh, thing yeah. was in my room, I would be able to and see. And I had the black light above it, too. So you, at night, you cut that thing on, and all you see is like a glow, the glowing eyes of Murray. You see a little bit of the priest, and you see a huge Dio logo in orange and yellow. And a, if a girl comes over, what happens? Yeah, you know I didn't have any girls with the poster right there above, <laughs> my, above my bed. What if the priest was drowning and, and Murray was trying to save him? That's possible. The only problem with that is how did the priest get into chains with a lock on it? He was uh, attempting his Houdini trick. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was committing suicide. You know, that's, that's what yeah, he said. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> Murray saw the chain, picked it up. 
<laughs> That's it. Hold on it and it broke. It's a friendly demon. <laughs> <laughs> Not the most amazing thing, but a strange coincidence is that the very first track on this album, Stand Up and Shout, was the last track written. And that track was written only as the backing track. Um, At that particular point, uh, Jimmy was going to um, Germany to do an album with Scorpions. And so Jimmy left to do that, and we... We, there was no time for him to stay around and listen to the backing track or to the to the vocal track because it hadn't been written yet because he had to go and Vivian left as well because he had done all of his parts as well so they they both went away and uh, then I went into the studio and wrote the rest wrote the song the lyrically and melodically and uh, recorded it sent it to Viv and Jimmy and they went wow this is great wow brilliant well good I did my job then so it was that's the only song that was done a little bit more disjointedly than the others because they weren't there when I when I did it and I always liked and certainly in those days to have Jimmy at the desk when I sang all right so let's get to the track by track and the first song we got is stand up and shout so Kevin I mean I'm not going to say deal doesn't sound awesome but my problem with this is because he produced it, dude, the riff just, it's so good, but it disappears when he's singing. And it, I just wish it was like louder in the mix. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. On this track, I, there are other tracks where the guitar is perfectly set. Yeah. But yeah, I, yeah, I agree on this track. It is Ronnie above and beyond everyone else on it, but I still think it's, it's a perfect opening song if they hadn't chosen Holy Diver, right? They could have kind of gone with Holy Diver too as an opening track, but. They're kind of similar to Maiden because Dio always had the fast ripping opening song like Maiden did. And yeah. it's usually a short song, right? So you get, you know, just a quick one, two, and they're out into the next song. And they followed this up with Last in Line with We Rock. So it's kind of, you know, the same thing, similar approach. Yeah, Steve, I mean, it really feels like Ronnie and Vinny are like, all right, no matter what song it is, everybody's going to be able to hear the two of us. What the other two are doing, sometimes we'll be able to hear it and sometimes we ain't going to be able to hear it. But I will tell you that when they do Hey, like it was a strategically placed earworm. So Ronnie obviously knew how to write a song. There's no doubt about it. I love it. This thing's anthemic as hell. 
man, just hearing this as a kickoff in concert is just, I mean, there's nothing that gets you going more than this. The adrenaline from a song like this. I'm a huge fan of these types of songs. The, the riff, that type of chugging riff and the, like you said, the big gang courses and, uh, haze and stuff like that. I mean, I, I absolutely love this song. It's probably one of my top 10 Dio songs overall. It's so good. I get what you're saying about the production and, uh, it makes total sense to me. What I would do, and I'll tell you this up front here. There is a new Holy Diver record that's out there that's a remix by Joe Barisa. And I'll tell you what, it's nice to hear these songs with modern production. And he didn't, a lot of the artists these days, they're remastering records, but there's a big difference between remastering a record and remixing a record. Those two Kicks records, Blow My Fuse and Midnight Dynamite, were remixed by Bo Hill and sound amazing. Same for this uh, Dio record that's remixed by Joe Barisi. Check it out because it's bright and it's crisp and it's uh, it's cutting uh, and you can definitely hear the difference. I listened to it today. You are so spot on. It sounds amazing. I mean, the, the bass line in this on that mix just kills. You, you never realize how just thick that Jimmy Bain bass is in there and you know the the lead when Vivian plays the lead on this song in that new mix is just like like angels singing. Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of going out there and buying all these remastered uh, records, but I definitely pay attention of the records that get remixed because uh, I'll check them out first. But I repurchased this uh this Dio record with the Barisi mix, and I repurchased both those Kicks records with the Bo Hill mixes redone because I can tell the difference. And I'm not, I don't consider myself one of those uh, sound file guys. You know, I can't, I can't tell the difference in a CD and a in an album. I just, I can't. My ears can't tell that much difference. But I, I can definitely tell the difference in the original version of these remixes and the. Uh, Barisi uh, remix. All right, so second song, Holy Diva. Dude, I really like this song. Even though there's like no sing-along chorus, it does work. But man, does it piss me off that the rhythm guitar track is louder than the guitar solo. Like, I, this is where you can't have, like, Ronnie shouldn't have produced this. It, it needs level later. Like, he needs a level later. That's what he needs. <laughs> and I, I don't think... I guess you just hear it over and over and over and over, and it sounds right to somebody's ear. But uh, to me, I, I got to listen to this uh, remix because I think that will change my opinion on two songs that I actually really like. Now, I didn't need that 80 seconds at the front of Dungeons and Dragons bullshit he added in there. But uh, besides that, the song's pretty good. Kevin, I'm sure you like that bullshit. I was going to say, you're absolutely right, Sonny. The intro is so cinematic, and it leads into <laughs> such the epicness of the song. Yeah. It's absolutely Ugh. impressive. It makes the hairs on my arms stand up, even now when I listen to it. Love it.
Holy Diver, as we've talked about before, I wrote myself. Just felt that uh, a song of that kind was needed to really be the basis of what this album was going to be. Uh, I felt that uh, a song a little bit more grandiose, much like uh, Stargazer that we had done before, of course, with Rainbow, or Heaven and Hell with Sabbath, or, or whatever the tracks may be. Those were always, they are, were and still are the, the kind of songs that I really like, and I think it represents certainly the kind of lyrics that I've always written a bit better. I think they fit a little bit better inside of that that scope. So I wrote the song because I thought it would, much like having Vinny with me, it gave me some security. I had a song already there that I knew was going to work. I mean, this is the ultimate Dio song for me. It's the one that turned me on to him. It made me a lifelong fan, made me go seek him out. So this this song is just almost perfection. The New mix, you definitely need to check that out because I listened to it today. I'm like, my God, the guitar, bass, and drum. The tones on the remix is just perfect. It sounds so good. And, and the lead section sounds really good. What I love about these older albums is they have space and breath in them. And I miss that today because we don't get a lot of that with today's stuff. But there's enough space in the middle of this song where it kind of breaks down and then you get back into it. It has a lot of personality with Dio's voice and I'm just going to ask a question, though. What the hell is he talking about in this song? I, I have no idea what the man's talking about, Ride the Tiger. He's been asked many times, I think, what what exactly is the Holy Diver, but I don't know that he ever, he may have answered it, but I missed it. I don't know. Yeah. Well, Stephen, I'll give you the answer he gave in an interview. Please do. The song Holy Diver is really about an alien Christ figure who, on another place, not Earth, has done exactly the same as we've apparently experienced or we're supposed to have experienced on earth, meaning dying for the sins of man so that man can start again and be cleansed and do it properly. I still don't know what it means. Like, <laughs> never so you name. How did I miss that? It was so obvious. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. But Stephen, this is most likely, I mean, this is a Sabbath song because he was already working on it. If he's still in Sabbath, this is Black Sabbath. Oh, completely. I definitely agree with that. It has all the flavor in the world of a, of a Sabbath song. I like that it goes from the speed and intensity of a stand up and shout into this really heavy 
groove without completely dragging the tempo to a dead stop. It's obviously very, very much slower than like a stand up and shout, but the groove and the pace moves. So it just, it seems to flow for me really well coming out of stand up and shout into a song like Holy Diver. And I'll say this about Ronnie James Dio. My recollections growing up with him in high school and drawing the logo on my folder is that I really always appreciated his lyrics, even if just like certain quibs of his lyrics, like certain phrases that he would give, I just felt were really, really cool. And if you listen to this album, I know that, you know, people always are like, Dungeons and Dragons. Ronnie James Dean is all about Dungeons and Dragons, but it's really not. I mean, there's, you know, okay, there's Rainbow in the Dark, but overall in this album, it's not Dungeons and Dragons. A lot of the themes and topics throughout this record are not that at all. So he went on to do some of that stuff, sure. And uh, uh, of course, there's a lot of that imagery attached to him, but I don't think necessarily. Uh, especially this debut album that it was embedded in the music itself. I agree with that. The lyrics aren't all Dungeons and Dragons. No. Yeah. Well, since we're talking about lyrics, let's go to Gypsy because I want Kevin's take on this here (laughs) because Kevin seems like a smart man. The lyric in Gypsy says, when I heard the voice said, you got a choice, the hammer or the nail. Awesome. Is that like me choosing if I'm the pin or the cushion? Is that what he's talking about there? Yeah, I'm assuming I've got like a religious reference in there, but yeah, that's what I'm assuming. I would also see that as either you're going to be the leader of the pack or the follower. Are you going to get pushed around or do the pushing? Interesting. Yes. Kevin, you like the song? So I think the, I think it's a killer riff. I like, you know, it's another rocker. It sets it up. And Ronnie's definitely one of the early guys to talk about Gypsy because every hair band in the late eighties had to put Gypsy somewhere in one of their songs or talk about Gypsy. So he was, you know, ahead of that curve. I think this song's a showcase for Vivian Campbell. It has more of an old school rainbow feel, but it's probably not my favorite song on the album. Still love it though in, in the context of the album. Gypsy just wanted to do something that was, you know, uh, just a little bit more feelful, perhaps a little bit more Stones-ish, 
perhaps a little bit. I think maybe that was my my thought. That it was sounded a little more like a Stones kind of song to me, and I wanted to do something like that so that there would be this difference between the songs. After all, Holy Diver is now this big production, and uh, you know, Gypsy's a little bit more shouted, and again, more more feel feelful. So I wanted wanted that particular song to be on this album as well. Stephen, I thought in the melody, it almost felt a little more easy to me. Yeah, I like a lot of the little uh, squeals that Vivian throws in there. Uh, this was written by Dio and Vivian. There's so many lyrics in here that I really dig. The one you just spouted out, I like I like straight from hell, but you could never tell because you were blinded by her light. She could crack your brain. I mean, that's just... That's an ode to Wendy right there. That's what that is. There's just so <laughs> many cool lyrics. I like the this one has a little bit different feel. So really all three, the first three songs on this record all have a slightly different feel at the same time are very cohesive. And uh, again, I like the groove of this one. I like the pace of it. I like those little uh, squeals that Vivian throws in there. It's, it's a good song for me. So then we get to the four song caught in the middle. Kevin, this, this song's a little weird to me because, well, first of all, I sent you guys the riff. It was basically ripped off a Sweet Savage song, which we'll talk about in a minute. And it's he's more, Ronnie's more singing than screeching on this song. So it kind of felt like he was trying to write a radio hit. But then that weird transition to you'll feel it, you'll feel it. Like that, you'd have to do a radio edit to get that shit out of there. So it seems like there's a couple of songs like jammed together here, right? Yeah, I always felt like this song was meant to be a single or meant to be put into an 80s movie or something like that. It could have been a perfect soundtrack song. It's a little more poppy, and to me, it's kind of a preview of what we're going to get on Sacred Heart with Rock and Roll Children and stuff like that a few years later. I always liked it, but you're right. It's a little it's a little quirky to be a single. It's obvious to me they were trying to get a single out of this, but it's a little quirky. Uh, Steven, uh, Dio even went out of his way to go, ooh. He did a ooh, and so I was like, did he just say ooh? <laughs> well, I think you guys both nailed it. This, uh, this is definitely the attempt to put together something a little bit more radio oriented. And as he showed with the following records, there's always one song, at least one song on Dio records that are sort of slated as an attempt to get on the radio mystery and uh, rock and roll children. Like you said, Kevin, uh, he just, this is his first attempt at that. Uh, and then it gets to me, this is the best out of those bunch. I like Cotton uh, the Middle a whole lot more than Mystery and and Rock and Roll Children, but you know it's good for me. I mean, I like it. I don't I don't skip it when it comes on. So.
Caught in the Middle was a song that I wrote actually about Angelo. Angelo's life always seemed to be that of, of one caught in the middle of some kind of turmoil. He would always make decisions that were wrong, and uh, he would always come to me and go, Ron, what am I going to do? I said, oh, what's happened, Angelo? Caught in the Middle, are you? Yes. Wow, what a great title that is. That became Caught in the Middle, and the song was actually written about Angelo. unique songs right you've you got you're yeah. in four songs in and they're all very unique yet like you said Stephen, they all tend to go together it makes an album still yeah yeah all right so <laughs> the next song don't talk to strangers so i've obviously heard this song before i'm listening to the other to it the other day and i happen to be standing up and i don't know why i'm assuming from do videos right for some reason my body wanted to go right with a hand that hand movement that Dio does sometimes, I don't know why, right? Like that snap hand thing. I don't, I, I don't know why. <laughs> don't dream of women because they only bring you down and then hit that note. Dude, this Girl. song is awesome. This song is awesome, Kevin. <laughs> this is one of my all-time favorite Dio songs. It's It's got that spookiness to it, but it's a little tongue-in-cheek. I love the uh, pitch-shifted voice on hell and down and all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> it's you know it comes across like a ballad at first and then it punches you right in the gut to me this is setting you up for what you're going to get with last in line it's kind of the same formula the other thing that i love here is the galloping bass line because they were obviously taking cues from steve harris because this is yeah. could have been a, a maiden song it just you know dio sounds evil it's galloping it's got a killer lead from viv the resolving chord at the very end is an old beatles trick it's just you know ronnie putting a little bit of extra sauce on it
Don't Talk to Strangers, again, that was the second song that I, I had written on my own before finding the band that we were going to use. Wanted something, you know, up-tempo. It, it just became, that song just became a product of my guitar playing. I mean, that's what it was, you know, not the world's greatest guitar player, but I, I think a lot of the things that I've written, um, riffs and songs that I've written on my own, have been more acceptable because I play like every man. I don't play like... Uh, Richie, I don't play like Tony, I don't play like Craig, I don't play like all these you know guitar players that know how to do it. So what I play, anybody can pick up and do. And that's always appealed to me, I mean, because I think that's music is for the masses. I don't want to be Joe Satriani. You know, I, I'm, all I want to do is write a good song, but I think that because my method is that of everyone, that I, I think it, it made all things a lot more approachable. Yeah, Stephen, I like that uh, Vivian got to do a longer solo here too, because the other four songs, the solos are a little bit short. But uh, this one was a little bit longer. Yeah, I will hearken what you guys just said about this song. I mean, this is definitely one of my all-time favorite Dio songs ever. And this song, just thinking about this song live, when I saw it for the first time, I get I get those goosebumps that we talk about so often because this song live was one of the songs where I was like, Oh, I would like to like work on lighting rigs and do stuff for concerts because this is amazing. So I'll paint the picture of how this song went down live for me in the, on the last in line tour, because that was the first tour I saw, which is he starts that slow part and they underlight him with this red light. So it lights him up red and it just gives him that demonic look when he's singing that slow part but when the first drum roll comes around the light the red light goes off and they hit him with this sort of green cone laser around him and it was perfectly timed with the drum roll and it just looked amazing and he's doing all the the hand thing that Sonny just talked about and and his hand is is peeking through that cone of laser and smoke and it's just and when he goes and he hits that low note with uh the down the down and it goes to that low note that they kind of double on the record they killed the laser cone and they light him up from the bottom with the red again so that it looks very demonic when he says that and that live for me and it's it's out there you can go see it on live at the spectrum i think or whatever uh the concert films that he has out there uh but when you're front row on the barrier as a kid and watching this, it's just like, oh my God, this is the best thing I've ever seen in my life, you know? And it was, it was amazing. Then when they kick in, it's just, it's just heart pounding. I, I absolutely love this song. It's so amazing. And I love the lyrics and I love the guitar solo. It's just, it's killer. <laughs> they were hitting you with Broadway techniques, but your heavy metal brain didn't know. Yeah. It. Yeah. Completely. Completely. Yeah.
Uh, the next song on the album, uh, Straight to the Heart. There are some of these songs on this album that, that I think reflect my own trauma at the time as well. I mean, as a writer, I think you're always going to draw upon what's happened to you. I mean, I, either good or bad experiences, that's where it comes from. And during the making of this album, you know, I, I had some personal things that were going on that were that bothered me quite a bit. And I think a lot, some of the songs that are on this album, you know, reflect that. Uh, one of them being straight through the heart. Uh, and the song itself, you know, is here it comes again, straight through the heart, you know, and there's no worse pain on the face of the planet when you're in love with someone or, or that kind of a thing. So, I mean, I just use that as an example of, you know, something, you know, very hurtful. Uh, so, but I think, you know, again, they, they reflect some of my feelings uh, at the time. No one So side two, first song, straight to the heart. I'm listening to this the other day and I'm going, you know, it's obviously not the first time I've heard this. So I'm listening to do, 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 do. And I'm like, I haven't listened to what Vinny's doing at all. I was so kind of into what Ronnie and Viv is doing. I just haven't been listening to what Vinny's doing. And I'm like, man, Vinny is killing it on this song. So I went back to side one and just tried to listen to drum parts. Dude, Dio got really lucky that Vinny followed him because I'm not sure he would have been able to get somebody that really got kind of the feel the deal was looking for. You know, we took a lot of chances in this album. We did, maybe not chances, what we actually did was we did a lot of things that nobody else had done before because we didn't know any better. Drums, for example. We uh, put the drums with uh, Vinny's back to the uh, studio window and we built around him out of sheets, four by eight sheets of plywood, a room and we mic'd the inside of that place that we captured him, and that's why you hear this drum sound. And we did it on the second album as well, on Last in Line, too, because it worked for us. Uh, so live, made the drums so alive, just like the rest of the tracks were. But that's one of the, the things that we did throughout this album. We set, had the drums set up that way. So we hardly ever saw Vinny. He was always boxed away somewhere. Totally agree. That's one of the things that makes this album and the next one so special, is the band that he put together they work so well together because they're all unique in what they do. Even Jimmy Bain, he's laying down a lot of groove, but his bass, the way that he plays bass, the way that he plays with Vinny, what Vinny does on drums, you can hear one song, probably like not even, let me call it 20 seconds of a song, and you'll know if it's Vinny or not because he just has a unique style, the way he plays, the way he does his roles, everything, very unique. And that's what makes this whole album work is the band that he put together, man, they just work so well together and they're all so unique. Yeah, I don't know if you guys know. You know, uh, Jake was supposed to be in this band. Hmm. Jake and Lee. So the story goes that Jake had left Rough Cut and Wendy was uh, managing Rough Cut. Jake and Dio get in room together. And Dio has said, I couldn't like get a read on that guy. Like I, it wasn't very super friendly or nothing. And I couldn't get a read on him. And so Jake ends up in Ozzy instead. But, uh, that would have been interesting. Steven on this straight to the heart through the heart though. It's like a Zach Wild type riff, right? Now, I guess I'm calling it a Zach Wild type riff. Zach doesn't even show up till later, but that's just what I've labeled those kind of riffs as. But I will tell you, this power metal, this is my limit. This is it. I, mean, I like this song, but one step further than this, I can't deal with it no more. So 
Ronnie's at least keeping me interested. I just, I don't feel the power metal thing in this. I mean, it is straight up metal, but it's just a groove, hard rock and metal song. I, I don't feel the, I mean, because I'm not, I'm not a huge power metal fan myself. But to me, Saxon is power metal. That's why this Saxon's like one level above this. I can't handle it. Kevin, you feel like Saxon is a power metal band? I would put them in that category now. I mean, they obviously started as a new wave of British heavy metal, but nowadays they, yeah, absolutely are power metal, but they're their own version of it. But this song is not power metal to me because this is a mid-tempo kind of cool and creepy. Power metal is usually really fast. I mean, it's it's got a groove in there. Power metal doesn't normally have that this kind of bass. Yeah, you know, that kind of variation on a groove. You were talking about Jimmy Bain and and uh, Vinny Abbasi earlier. I think that one of the things that gets overlooked, especially on this record, is the writing that Jimmy Bain does with Ronnie. I mean, he does a lot of the writing on this thing. And so I think that not only was it a solid rhythm section, but they were locked in as a team in terms of writing, you know. And so that just plays into exactly what Kevin was saying, which is this is just an outstanding lineup that worked for the right reasons, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And he and Jimmy, of course, they they worked together in Rainbow. So they had already worked through all the, the kinks probably of how to write together. So they were just on when it came to this time point in time. This is 83. They've been doing this, you know, for several years before this. Yeah. And I mean, again, I've got a cassette of this. That's my first uh, purchase is, is the cassette of this. And I'm going through the first side and I start with stand up and shout and I end with don't talk strangers. I flip the cassette over and this is a pretty good opener for a second side. I mean, it's, I think it's a little bit more than just mid-tempo. It's a little bit faster paced than that. Uh, and it's a groove. And, you know, it's another song that I won't skip. I don't skip it. No, I put this in classic category along with, you know, some of the others we've already talked about. And I think uh, this was on a, a Lizzie Hale uh, EP, wasn't it? Didn't she cover this? No. Sonny, no? Okay, she no. covered it in a concert. I know there's some live footage of her doing this, and I thought maybe she threw it on uh, one of her EPs, but no. No, not that I know of. Okay. All right, so second song, second side, Invisible. So I guess the story goes, the intro that you hear wasn't the one they actually wrote. They wrote an intro, they go to listen to it, and the engineer had the tape in backwards. So the engineer plays it, and Ronnie's like, what the hell is that? Well, wait, well, wait, wait. That's actually pretty cool. Use that. So, it, total mistake. This song, Kevin, I don't know. I didn't need the first 70, 80 seconds of the song. Like, I just, I don't need the mood setting shit. That's basically, I don't need it. Well, to me, it's, you know, the beginning sets it up like it's going to be another Dungeons and Dragons kind of song. Yeah. But then when it kicks into the song, it gives you something completely different. So, I agree with you. It, it, to me, this is the one song where the intro does not work with what you get afterwards. The thing that works about this song is the amazing guitar lead by Viv in this one. Just one of my favorite guitar leads on the whole album is in this song. But the riff, as I was listening to it today, I'm like, damn, that riff is almost I Love Rock and Roll. Really oh, close. Yeah.
Invisible, I, I just love the idea of, of, of what we were going to do to the song. Um, I, I thought it was a clever title. Uh, it was written about three different people. A gay man, a gay young, young man, uh, a, an abused girl, and me. It was a triumvirate for you. Uh, anyway, I, and I, I wanted to write these songs from the standpoint of, of someone who had been injured more you know, psych, psychologically trauma that way uh, and that happened in the case of the of the the young girl uh, in the the gay boy they were always being put upon and kicked and shoved around for not being what people expect them to be and then included myself in the last part of it only because you know I've spent all my life on a stage and a lot of trauma involved and a lot of that stuff too I thought I deserved to be in that uh, because of what most musicians have had to go through in their lives but the whole answer to it was you can just become invisible. You can escape those kind of things because you have a mind that'll let you do that. And I don't mean escape them forever, but you know, when people do that to you, why do you want to stand there and have the arrows and the stones being thrown at you? Hey, I've just become invisible. You never see me. So I really, really liked what the attitude of the song was. Again, played really well, just really, really well. Everything on this album was played so well by the by Jimmy and Viv and and uh, Vin. Stephen, I I like the story he's telling. I don't know about the b b b b b b b b b b b like I don't know, whatever. And you know, 
any song that's got chalice in the lyrics is pretty much dead to me. I really like the lyrics in this song. <laughs> the lyrics in this song are great for me, and I like the change of pace. I like the intro. I like the feel, the mood that it sets, you know, because other than the beginning of Don't Talk to Strangers, there's really not a whole quieter moments in this record thus far. And so I do like that it sort of changes the pace a little bit without completely losing everything, right? Because the song does kick in and does get heavier as it goes. But I just, I really like the lyrics of this song. And um, uh, I like when he says, you've just become unseen, you know, from invisible to unseen or something like that. As the lyric goes, I, I just, I think that's cool. All right. So two more songs left on the record. We get to Rainbow in the Dark, possibly one of the most iconic keyboard riffs you are ever going to hear in this type of rock was a complete luck. So the story goes that Jimmy, which I guess was known to have basically a drink in one hand and a cigarette in the other hand all the time. They're listening to playback of uh, a demo that they recorded for Rainbow in the Dark. He puts his drink down and he's sitting, he's standing next to a piano or a keyboard and just starts messing around. And the keyboard riff was the mess around. And all of a sudden, to me, it's actually more important than the guitar riff is almost because it's so damn loud in the mix that that's all you can hear. But I'll tell you, for a guy that was hearing this in 87, 88, I would say this is the song that hooked me to buy the album. Kevin? You are so different. So same, <laughs> You absolutely hate the song. So, the keyboard. Well, I'm, I'm going to step back to Kevin in 1987, right? So <laughs> Kevin in 1987 was coming out of punk, starting to get into metal. And I had something against keyboards. And I heard this song. And remember, I don't have MTV. So I didn't even know there was a video for this thing. I'd never seen it. But this song back then was my skipper. For some reason, that keyboard was so loud and so cheesy to me. That I'm like, I can't listen to that one. Nowadays, I love it. I, you know. Rainbow in the Dark, uh, you know, it's a song that I really disliked. And when it was finished, I announced to everyone that I was going to take a razor blade and just cut the tape up. And so I went for the razor blade, and I went, no, no, don't, don't, don't. I said, well, I don't like it. It's too poppy for me. To me, for me, it was too poppy for this album. I didn't want to create a piece of pop because it came from a different space. It came from Black Sabbath already. You know, a band that allowed me to do anything that I wanted to, as dark as I wanted to do it. Uh, so I didn't want 
those people who had liked what I'd done in Black Sabbath to say, oh, here he goes, now he's changed, hasn't he? Now he's become a pop, pop artist. I didn't want that to happen. And to me, because of, and, and only because the rest of the songs weren't quite as poppy as that. This one really stood out as being a, a, a pop kind of thing. And the riff was poppy, and the, the little keyboardy thing was poppy. But at the end of the day, it worked. So they talked me out of it, and I didn't do that. And I thanked them over and over and over again for doing it, which doesn't mean that it's my favorite song. So, I mean, I still will always have that feeling of that song, that it was too poppy for me. Luckily, the bands that have played that song now have all gotten the idea that it needs to be a lot heavier. So it is. So it works. But again, I'm very glad that they, they talked me out of that. But I, I disliked it so much that I really wanted to destroy the, the thing. And I believe in the beginning, that song, that was, uh, that was Viv's riff, and... It was originally called by Viv, I think it was called A Bottle of Wine. Uh, well, at least we got a better title out of it than, than that. Uh, but that was Rainbow in the Dark. Eighty-seven Kevin was a different Kevin, but yeah, I just—that's really funny that you were saying the exact opposite of what yeah. I was saying at the same time. And we would have never, like you and I, stuff we're listening to, blah blah blah. We're at opposite ends of the playground, like we don't even talk <laughs> to each other, right? That's just—that's yeah. just how it goes. Stephen, I was thinking, dude, if I get it, it's a classic song and nobody wants to mess with it. But goddamn it, if Zach would do a meteor heavier version of this, BLS would absolutely kill this song. You know, as I listen back to this song these days, like prepping for this episode, I was like, I'm really sort of surprised that 16-year-old Steven liked this song because the keyboards are so freaking heavy. I'm like, I don't remember the keyboards being that that out front. And they're kind of happy. It's Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's so happy. Because, yeah. <laughs> you know, the 16-year-old Steven would have been like, we went from stand up and shout to this, but honestly, this was probably the first song I heard off this album with the video and everything. And I did like it. You know, I always was like, all right, cool. The video, you know, and I, I like the guitar solo in it. I think now it's a bit fatigue for me and it's a bit keyboard heavy and, you know, I still like it, but I can't say it's like, you're like, okay, you can play one song off the Holy Diver record. This isn't the song I'm playing, you know? So, uh, yeah, it's okay for me. I don't skip it. Yeah. And then the last song we got is Shame on the Night. <laughs> ah, Kevin, this, this song has the elements of things I hate, right? Just the wolf howling at the beginning. I'm like, oh, here we go. But then I'm like, oh, that little guitar melody kind of works. And then the Sabbath side sludgy comes in. I'm like, oh, no. But I'm like, oh, wait a second. The melody still works. Kind of like the bass Ronnie thing by themselves. I like the little breakdown thing. I'm like, why is it I like this song? So I play it over again, and I'm like, oh, this song is set up to really show the power and everything that deals God in his vocal. God, he absolutely sells this song, because if it's not Ronnie, there's no way I ever listen to this song again. It's exactly what I wrote down is I put Ronnie's voice is so powerful in this song that it over just overtakes everything. He put yeah. everything into the song. But the song itself, to me, comes across in the beginning, very rainbow-esque. 
But then in the end, you get that heavy riff, that real doomy Sabbath vibe to end the album, which I think is pretty cool. But it's almost like Ronnie said, I want a song at the end that captures everything I've done in my career up to this point. That's kind of how it comes across. It's not my favorite song on the album, but it does come across that way. Like, this is me. This is Ronnie James Dio. And the last song, Shame on the Night, I think, again, is probably a reflection of how I felt at the time. Nighttime is the worst time on earth to, to have problems. Everything during the day seems like it, you know, life is going to be okay, but as soon as it gets dark and dreary and the oppression falls on your shoulders, you start thinking too much. There's not, not much you can do at 4 o'clock in the morning, but think. 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I can go out for a ride or take a walk or whatever, but 4 o'clock in the morning, I don't think most people should be out at that time. Usually you get in trouble doing that. Uh, so, you know, I think I equated the night at that time with, you know, having bad dreams and bad things going on. Uh, and it was, again, I thought a clever title, uh, personalizing the night and saying shame on you. Um, and, you know, riff-wise, it worked as well. The parts that I like about this is I think, like Kevin said, Ronnie needed to let people know I'm not getting too far away from Sabbath. So there's going to be the slow and the drudgy. I got to put some pop in it. Otherwise, it's never going to get on the radio. No one's going to buy this, which so you got to have rainbow in it. And then there's just this, it's just his own kind of spin. It's like he said in an interview, the reason he chose like all the fantasy imagery and blah, blah, because nobody was really doing that. 
And it was better than the whole drudgy thing that Sabbath was doing. He didn't want to do that whole death and evil and that kind of shit. He didn't want to play good against evil, and he does a lot of that in these songs. But uh, his flavor kind of comes out here, but it's a, it's a blender of everything else, though, that's for sure. I think it's well documented, my feelings on this song and the songs that uh, Ronnie James Dio puts on the end of his records. This song <laughs> is basically what stops this from being a Desert Island record for me. Okay, I'll say this. I hated this song before I started doing the research for this record and doing this episode. So I had to listen to this song, you know, several times over the past few weeks. I don't think it's as bad as I initially felt, but I still don't really love this song. The one thing I don't like about Sabbath is that slow, drudgy Sabbath. To me, that's I don't love that part of Black Sabbath. I like the the more upbeat Sabbath tunes. And so the slow drudgy stuff, and then there's a little bit of Zeppelin mixed in there, sort of sounds like in some of those grooves. I don't know. It's just, this is a skipper for me. I skip this song just about every time it comes on. I don't love this song, and I absolutely hate Egypt. Uh, the chains are off on freaking Last in Line at the end of the album. I don't know which one I dislike more. Egypt or Shame on the Night, I'd have to listen to them side by side, which is brutal to begin with. Egypt's uh, way worse. Is it? Way worse. See, of course I love Egypt. Yeah, that's, see, way worse. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's just not, I don't like either one of those things in it. And it sucks for me. I guess the positive note is it's at the end of the album. So it's easy for me just to move on to another album. But I hate it because literally I love this album so much that to come to a dead stop after Rainbow of the Dark sort of hurts my feelings a bit. Hmm. All right. So that's the album. Let's do top two, bottom two. I'll share mine first. Uh, top two for me is easy. Rainbow in the Dark, Holy Diver, the two songs that are probably the most popular on this thing. I like some of the other songs, but uh, those are my two favorite. Bottom two, Caught in the Middle, just kind of felt like it's like four songs jammed together. Just didn't do it for me. And I didn't love Invisible. I, I, I didn't really love that song too much. Kevin, how about you? Yeah, top two for me, definitely Holy Diver. I think I already said how much I love that song and what it did just for my fandom of this individual um my second would be don't talk to strangers i just love that song i love the power in it and then my bottom two invisible for me as well it's just to me the, the beginning and the where it leads to don't really go together and then shame on the night would be my other hmm. and then steven how about you uh top two was super easy for me stand up and shout and don't talk to strangers hands down i didn't even have to think about that one my bottom two is a little bit harder. It was really easy for me to scream out shame on the night. That's a no brainer for me. The second bottom was a lot tougher for me and it's between caught in the middle and invisible. But then there's that part of me that's like rainbow in the dark. It was really more keyboardy than I remember. And I'm kind of over it because I, it's got fatigue, but I guess I would probably go with caught in the middle uh, because I do like the change of pace that invisible provides. So that'll be my second one is caught in the middle. So want to get everybody's final thought on this album. Then we'll go to the historic moment, but uh, <laughs> so let me read you something I saw about this album. Dio's imaginative and narrative lyrics struck a chord with the fantasy and role-playing generation, which thrilled to the singer's references to dragons, magic, and mystery. Just reading that statement 
makes me cringe. <laughs> Anything connected to that, I like. That being said, this album's pretty good overall, though. This album is pretty good. And I had not heard it from cover to cover in forever. This Maybe, shit, maybe 30 years. I don't know. Because I usually just kind of skip around to stand up and shout and don't talk to strangers and that kind of thing. And, of course, the two I like. But uh, kind of final thoughts on the record, Kevin? To me, this is, um, for me personally and just in general, I think this is one of the best representations of heavy metal. It's a genre-defining album to me. Uh, especially in that era of the early 80s. I think it captured everything that came out of the 70s, and obviously Ronnie was there for all of that, that made metal what it became in the 80s, and then he gave a statement of, you know, here's what 80s metal is going to be, and he kind of set the template for everyone else. I think the songs are, are varied, yet consistently heavy. So it's this good blend of light and dark, which he continued to do the rest of his career. And again, I already said it, but I think the playing and the players that he got together for this album are top notch and they work as a unit on this album more so than any other album. I think Vivian's leads on this album are the best he's ever done. And I think just the four of them working together and, and building this cohesive band product, this is the best they ever did. Yeah, Stephen, I want to get your thoughts. And I think you can honestly say if this was supposed to be the next Sabbath record, Tony would have never allowed this half of this record would not have ever existed as a Sabbath record. I don't know, man. That's, that's certainly an interesting question, an interesting way of looking at it. I don't know. For me, and we talked about it in last month's debut albums episodes, and a lot of the listeners chimed in as well. I mean, it's one of the most best, well-received hard rock and metal records, uh, debut records ever. Uh, and it is just one song short of a desert island record for me, but it, it opened up the door for me on Ronnie James career, which led to me loving so much in rainbow. Uh, and I absolutely think that mob rules and heaven and hell are two of the greatest heavy metal hard rock records ever. Uh, and definitely I liked that Sabbath more so than the Aussie send your hate mail to sunnypooney.com uh, because I'm sure that, that that's blasphemy in a lot of ways. Uh, and Aussie's speak of the devil opened up my eyes to a lot of the old Sabbath. And I like a lot of the old Sabbath, but I like that newer, heavier riff oriented stuff uh, that came on mob rules and, and heaven and hell. I mean, I really, really like it a lot. Stuff like neon nights and signs, sign of the Southern cross and, and just, you know, just so many good things off those records. So it did that. I also think that he set the standard for what I should expect bands to be able to pull off in live performances, because I'm telling you, those concerts, both those tours, the Last in Line tour and the Sacred Heart tour were, you know, memory bending for me personally, uh, just seeing those shows live uh, and seeing what was, you know, what was possible with animatronics and lasers and things like that. It was just amazing to be a kid on the barrier for those shows. And I'll never forget it. So this album, you know, opened up my eyes to a lot of that stuff. All right, so let's connect it to KISS.
It's time for your historic moment on Growing Up Rock. So since we're talking 1983, as we've said before, all of the songs I'm going to pick are going to connect to the album Lick It Up. So for the historic moment on this one, we're going to go with a Brazilian thrash metal band that's been around since 2010. The song was on an album released in 2016 called Headbangers Afterlife. So here is Executor with an A instead of an E with their version of Gimme More.
yeah. Not only do I love the name Executor, but I like this song. I thought this version was decent. It wasn't offensive. There wasn't a bunch of cookie monster vocals and stuff on it. So, of course, I send this. And Kevin goes, yeah, Executor, I know that. Of course you know that. They sold three albums. Of course you know who they are. He's got all three copies. <laughs> I love Brazilian metal. Especially love the stuff where they're trying to do, like, old school metal instead of the newer newer metal that comes out of brazil there's a lot of these bands now that are doing this traditional style heavy metal and i love it i think it's so good and i guess if you're not going to sing it like paul which you're not going to be able to sing it like paul then you better put your own spin on it not like paul in any way (laughs) yeah i liked it it's definitely more metal but i liked it that's good stuff this record as a whole good stuff so that closes out our march as we head towards the spring Who knows what we're going to get next month. I haven't looked at our list yet, but I'm sure it's going to be something interesting. Probably a sunny pick uh, is up next, but I love this album. I'm glad we were able to do this record. Kevin, once again, thanks for joining us on this. This month of March has a whole lot of Kevin Williams in it. Since you've uh, been on the podcast, this will be your second time this month. That's all right. We like having you around. You're easy to work with. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. And yeah, like Sonny said, he gave me a list. I saw this. I'm like, yep, that's the one. That's the one. I absolutely <laughs> love this album. So, Well, it's interesting, some of the people that we have on some of the other selections, because it's just, uh, it's not necessarily, you're kind of like, I always ask people, did Sonny make you take this or did you actually volunteer to do this record? Because on some of the you know, Def Leppard ones, it's like, uh, well, this is all that was left, <laughs> that kind of thing. So I like to always know, are you an actual fan of the record or not? Hey, I like the one you guys gave me. That was great. <laughs> because you never, you never can tell whether, whether people, you know, we've gotten some people that's like, yeah, yesterday was the first time I listened to this record. Ugh. <laughs> it's like, why is this guy on this episode? <laughs> I like to be sort of evenly weighted that way. I don't have to feel pressure to to love it or hate it one way or the other. I like to be natural, you know, either I like it or I don't. And I want to be truthful with everything that I'm doing. But if you got three people that all hate the record, it's kind of rough. <laughs> well, you've got a guy that has a black light poster of this album cover. So. Yeah. You got the right guy. Yeah, it's good stuff. So in Obscuria podcast, when does your episodes come out? Always on Friday. Always on yeah. Friday. Yep. Yeah. Every Friday, unless we have uh, a holiday. All so right. Holidays. Awesome. So you can find the In Obscuria podcast wherever you find your fine podcast. I'm sure wherever you're listening to this. Even your shitty ones. You can find it the same place. Yep. They're all there. All in one place. That's a fact. <laughs> Kevin, thanks for joining us, Sonny Pooney. Before we get up on out of here, do you have anything that you want to add to the conversation? Wait till people see April's pick. I just looked at what it was. Woo! All right. Fun times. Good times. Remember all this year we are celebrating albums that are celebrating their 40th anniversary. So that's the theme for this year. And like I said, at the beginning of the year, we're going to be doing rock, pop, and metal all throughout. So it's a fun one, but we're getting outside the box a little bit from the Grown Up Rock podcast. And that's all good because we know there's a lot of you guys out there that like other kind of stuff, not just heavy metal, just like us. So... That's it. Until next week. See ya. Later. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
So much of this works out. I mean, if I'm not giving enough credit to the other people in the band, you know, please forgive me because this was a total package that we put together. This was four of us and not Ronnie. Uh, whatever accolades I've gotten from it are probably because I've carried on with this band and because I have, have a long history of doing things. But they did such a great job. Um, you know, I never want to diminish anything that either Viv, Viv, Jimmy, or Vinny did on this. So uh, if I'm talking in terms of only myself, it's only because I'm. I'm the one who's talking, and I don't mean to. So, you know, kudos to them forever and ever. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.